Hello and welcome back to the Red Sector, a podcast about speedy motorbikes. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Sector Moto GP. On today's episode, we're going to continue our long-awaited series, Behind the Paddock, where we interview people from the motorcycle racing paddock so you can get to better know these people. I'm your host, Matt Polanski, who you can follow on all social media at Matt Polanski1. I'm joined today, as always, by the walking, talking MotoGP encyclopedia that is Bunno, who you can follow on Twitter at BunnoGP underscore and Instagram at BunnoGP. And we couldn't do this without the Red Sector statistical person, Elisa. You can follow on Twitter at Elisa Fide. I, I probably said that wrong. And Instagram at Tika Lenlika, because she taught me how to say that three times last episode. So that's Bunno, that's Elisa, but let's get to the guest. Um, this person has been in the motorcycle racing paddock for years now. Uh, he's one of the commentators for World Superbike now. Uh, he's also the host of the Paddock Pad podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve English. You almost managed to say Paddock Pass podcast correctly there, Matt. So I'm going to give you a hat, a tip of the hat for that. But uh, no, it's great to be on. It's great to be on. Like um, I remember talking to you probably about two years ago, whenever you were getting yourself mm-hmm. started with the pod. And uh, it's nice to to finally get on. I was going to bring that up. Uh, when we started the podcast, we were trying to come up with the tagline to end the podcast on, and we ended up getting, uh, uh, and with that, keep the throttle pinned from Matt Dunn. But the first person I messaged before hitting up Matt was Steve, because he had the Paddock Pass podcast. And I'm like, well, he he could probably come up with something. And he immediately no. responded with, that's not my type of thing. Sorry. I think I think my exact response was, I'm completely shit at things like yeah. that. I mean, he knows his fields. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's, he's not trying to like bargain himself any higher than what he thinks he, he can do. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, Steve, how are you doing today? Are you All good. What are you uh, doing? I'm in Dublin at the minute, um, just after getting back from Perret for World Superbike testing. So there's another test in Portimao this week, and then we get ready to fly out to Australia in about three weeks' time. So uh, the season comes up pretty fast, especially this year, just because Indonesia finished the year so late. So it's going to be uh, it's going to it's going to be great to get to get to get going again. And have you had a uh, decent time off? Winter, Christmas, New Year. It was a busy time off. I, I kind of got back. It was Australia, obviously, the last round of last year and then straight to Phillip Island for the first round. So it's quite condensed this year. So I came back home in the middle of November. I went straight out from Australia to go visit my sister. So she lives abroad. So got out there for four or five days, came home and you were just trying to get all your work finished for the year. You're like all the, the boring admin jobs that you put off for the full year. So get your taxes done and get yourself basically boxed off for Christmas. And then once you get through Christmas, you're pretty much straight into testing with super bikes as well. So it's, it's one thing after the other during the course of the winter, there's no real let up. And then once you get into the super bike season, that's when it gets pretty good because we get quite a few decent breaks between rounds this year, especially. So we've got it probably about as close as an ideal calendar as you can get. And there's no harm being busy in the winter. The weather's not great in Ireland in december and january so it's a good excuse to keep yourself busy and then when we get into the summer that's when super bikes kind of stretches out a little bit and you're really able to take advantage of the smaller calendar because when you look at the motor gp calendar now you know you're not envious of those guys having to to deal with the amount of travel that they're going to have this year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
True. Yeah, so we're going to start this interview like we have in the past with some quick fire questions, and we revamped these recently to kind of clean them up a bit. Um, so the first quick fire question is your favorite football club? Um, well, I'm a John, I've always been a fan of a lot of different clubs. And uh, when you grow up in Ireland, typically you follow an English club or you follow Celtic. So I was always an Ipswich fan whenever I was younger. But it was <laughs> sorry, Steve. That went. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like yeah. you know because a lot of I know a lot of Irish people sport like Liverpool or Man United, and you mentioned yeah, Celtic, and then you were sorry, like Hunters. Ipswich. <laughs> I was like, what? I um, I tell you what, like because I, I, we got Sky in about nineteen ninety seven, so Ipswich had just been relegated from the Premiership, so they were on Sky quite a lot. And the the first game I saw them play, they won five 0 and then the next game they were on, it was you know three two or something like that. Every game that they were on TV was a high scoring game. And then I realized every time they're on TV, I'm watching them. And then I eventually realized, no, you've just become a fan. <laughs> but uh, it was it was funny because when Dundalk were playing in the Champions League qualifiers or playing in the Europa League over the last 10 years, it was then that I kind of realized that even though I, I followed Ipswich, I was never really a fan. Whereas whenever I was able to go and experience the away days with Dundalk for something like that, you realized that's what being a fan really is. Like when they scored goals, you had that moment of hesitation before you realized what had happened and then you could celebrate and you went crazy. And it was things like that that seen a small team from, you know, a tiny town in a tiny league almost qualifying for the Champions League. And, uh, you know, I remember going to games where the opposition had to take off or had to, to take on a sub and it was a £30 million Brazilian international to try and beat Dundalk. And you're just kind of like, this is what being a fan is all about, to be amazed by your team and to to have that sense of wonder. So I'm a Dundalk football fan. That's a good story, to be fair, because I was, I was sort of expecting as soon as you started, like I say, going into like... Cause, I understand from a point of view of, you know, Irish football or soccer, as some Irish people call it, is not the greatest standard. So I understand sort of like the admiration for like Liverpool and Man United over the years. So I was really not expecting Ipswich, who, you know, have 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 sort of just simmered in the lower leagues the last like decade or so. So I, I kind of... Decades being very fair. 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't want to say decades and really rub it in, but yeah. Um but anyway, um, the next question is, it says last book or song. So I'll say last song you listened to. Uh, the last song I listened to was Atlantic City by Bruce Springsteen. Oh, that's not wow. bad. That's not bad. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a big Springsteen fan and I've got my tickets for him. He's coming to Dublin this year again. And that's that's usually the only real concert that I get excited to go and see because typically a concert over here costs 100, 110 euro a ticket and you need to love the band to go and pay that sort of money. But yeah. more than anything else, you also need the band to be someone that's good live, someone that puts an awful lot out on stage and that's, that's Springsteen all over. And you don't get a support act, so you don't pay money to go see a band that you don't want to see. You just get them on stage for the whole way through. So... That's probably why I've always been a bit of a Springsteen fan. Yeah, and okay. next question is a really easy one. So it's Coke or Pepsi? Coke, every day of the week. Who, who answers Pepsi? That is a I do. Sorry. Right, well, well, oh, you're no. wrong, Elisa. You're just wrong. <laughs> the caffeine, caffeine-free version is better with Pepsi, I think. That's, that's my reason I, for it. 
do you know what? I'm actually quite a fan of the caffeine-free Coke Zero mm. because it tastes the it tastes very similar to the normal one, and I'm not mm. uh, kept up all night by a can of Coke late in the evening. I will say this: if you if you like Diet Coke, then I think there's a cold place in hell waiting for you. Personally, I, I, diet <laughs> Diet Coke. I'm like, who drinks Coke to have it diet? Do you know what I mean? Like, no calories or like no mm. sugar or anything else. Fair enough, but like Diet Coke tastes awful. So I just put that one out. There's only one person I know of, and I don't know him personally, but if you ever uh, are on YouTube, uh, the guy that does game theory, oh, yeah. uh, his his name or his screen name is Matt Pat, and he has like a Diet Coke addiction. But he's the only I love person how you I've all, ever heard of. You straight away distance yourself. You're like, I don't know him. I don't him know personally. him personally. <laughs> I, I'm aware that there are people that drink Diet Coke. I'm aware that there's people that drink there's Pepsi. But I just don't want to be anywhere near those people. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, the next one, I'm, I'm sure we know the answer. Two wheels or four wheels? Well, do you know what? You say you're sure you know the answer. I grew up as a Formula One fan. That was my first memories were watching F1. And um, I always wanted to work in Formula One. So whenever I got started as a journalist, it was actually writing a Formula One column and previews for races, this, that and the other. But from whenever I was probably, I remember from whenever I was about 14, bikes became a much bigger part of my my race watching. And uh, from that point on, I was just always both, you know, I, like as it stands now, I'd be more inclined to watch a bike race than a car race because Formula One over the last few years hasn't grabbed me the same way it did whenever I was a kid. But I wouldn't have any I wouldn't have any beef with anyone saying they're a four wheel fan. As long as you're enjoying watching motor racing, it's good for everyone. Good answer. Um, two stroke or four stroke? Um, that, that that's a bit dependent because if I was looking at like Moto three versus one two five, I'd rather watch a Moto three race. If I'm looking at two fifties against Moto two, I'm probably looking at two fifties, and then five hundreds against Moto GP. It's take your pick, really. So I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't be one or the other really. But I remember when uh, I think it would have been Ian Locker at TT from about five years ago turned up on the Suter two stroke. And there was much more excitement about that bike than any bike I've ever seen at the TT or, or pretty much at any race. Well, so, sounds like you divert into uh, <laughs> ignoring it to answer that one, Steve. But I'll I'll it, I'll see. It's a, it's a political answer, all right. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, to be fair, sometimes it's it's dependent on like what you grew up with or like you know like heroes growing up. Or some people are just like, no, it's better now than it ever has been. So four strokes. So like. You know, it's it is quite dependent. I think if we had well, a modern electronics and a modern design around a two-stroke, then that would be obviously the best of both worlds, and then you'd have something absolutely ludicrous, probably. And we all know what rider we'd like to see on a two-stroke. And if it, your your answer is anything other than Mark Marquez, you're wrong. Like you are wrong. <laughs> Imagine Mark on a on a like modernized two-stroke. That would be so. I would pay good money to just watch just Mark on a track go around on a, on a two stroke. I think that would be incredible. Next one is is inline fours or V fours. Um. Well, it's hard to argue with the V four whenever it's won both world championships this in last year, and especially in the superbike paddock, you're not going to have too many people that would turn down the Ducati. 
So I, I think with the benefits you can get from the V4, it's very difficult to argue about against it from a technical standpoint. So uh, the next one, your favorite era in MotoGP. So 900 or 990s, 800s, 1000s. Oh, my era. I well, think 1990s, like. Oh, no. <laughs> well, either um, way. You're not going to have anyone saying the 800s, really, because that was an awful time of watching racing. See, see this, um, is what, this is what Neil Morrison Josh. said. Yeah. Is Neil it? Morrison well, said the go. exact same Neil's thing. not wrong. Neil's yeah. not wrong. Um, no, the, the 800s, like, it was. I remember going to. I went to Le Mans during the first year of the 800s. And then I, like whenever I started working in the GP paddock, it was the last year of the 800s. And the the thousands, the thousands were a good change. But the 990s were so brutal that uh, I, I loved the, the V5 Honda. I remember going to Laguna as a fan in uh, 2006. And like the 990s were just awesome to see around there. So I'd, I'd probably go with the 990s. Nice. Okay, so favourite class in MotoGP, which I assume means now, which, I mean, depends what you, you know, if you prefer elbow to elbow, you'd probably say Moto3, but... No, nah, MotoGP. MotoGP's the, the premier class. It's the one that... It's the one that deserves the most attention. So MotoGP for me. And... What is the best circuit in your opinion in the calendar? You can say World Superbike. That's something you have your favorite one on. It's a it's an easy one because it's in both calendars. Phillip Island, hands down. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> no, look, how many people answer something else? How many people are saying, "Do you know what my favorite circuit is? It's the Bugatti circuit at Le Mans." There's not that many people <laughs> are going to say that one. Everyone's going to say Phillip Island. I think it's it's always been on my top three like circuits. Mm-hmm. Like even since when I was a kid. If you said to me as a five, six-year-old, what circuit would you like to watch this year if you had three? It would be the same three, probably. But Phillip Island was definitely on that list as a kid and definitely now. So, yeah, I, I think it's hard to argue when it is. It's one of those, isn't it? It's like it's made for motorbikes. It's not a car track. And it's just everything about it is just it's just perfect, I think, for, for a bike track. Yeah, and the thing with it is, especially when we go for super bikes, it's we're back to February again for this year. And you're there and it's 30 degrees. The water looks so blue. The sky is blue. There's no clouds. Everything about it is just immense. And then when we went back at the end of last season, it was my first time being back at the GP time of year since 2015. And I I then remembered just how cold and miserable Phillip Island can be that time of year. And we're going to go back there in two weeks time and it's going to be the paradise that Phillip Island is once again. And that's what makes PI great. Like GP goes there. It's it's the wrong time of year to be in Phillip Island. But even so, everyone still looks forward to it because it's Phillip Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the brisk the brisk winds of Phillip Island in like November, October just does not look like fun at all. <laughs> like I would not want to be sat on the bank in there. Like I probably would, but like in terms of the only con of going at that time of the year is just those winds are just not only are they cold they're like extremely dangerous but um yeah fair enough um what is your favorite corner on the track or on the calendar um stoner corner is always incredible to stand on the inside um 
there's a, the the woodcut at, at Silverstone is is awesome again to be on the inside of there. Um, it's it's impressive. Anywhere where bikes are coming past you, fifth gear and flat out, it's going to be pretty impressive. But mm-hmm. um, I'd say Stoner's probably Stoner's probably the best corner of the year because when you stand there, you realize how much they're having to do to try and just manhandle a heavy bike at that speed into the corner and then you need to still get it popped up to to come into Miller Hairpin as well. I'd say that the reason that why it's probably the most special for me is it's the best commentary box view that we have all year as well. So we're down on, on Miller Corner and you can see all the way from Southern Loop down through Stoner as it drops down into there and then down into the Hairpin and then up to Siberia. So I'd say for me, that's the best corner of the year because I could sit in that commentary box all day and look outside and barely have to look at the TV and you see half the track. So I'd say probably, yeah, go with Stoner. Well, if you if you remember when you're next in that box, you'll have to send us a picture to uh, to see your yep. view from that from that position. Um, so, what track not currently on the calendar would you like to see MotoGP go to? Um, well, I'll I'll actually make it into a World Superbike one if I can, and I'd love That's to fine. see us go to Suzuka because, like, I, I go to Suzuka for the eight hours, and it's unbelievable you know and yes. the the prospect of seeing a full world sbk round there would be fantastic motor gp won't be going back but we could go and suddenly we'd have a unique racetrack for our calendar we're in japan it, and it's just special so for me it would probably be suzuka other than that if spa was safe enough go to spa because i, I was chatting to a lot of the endurance riders about it this year and all of them loved it and they all said for superbikes, it's safe enough. For MotoGP, you'd probably need to do some work still. But mm-hmm. overall, the track is phenomenal. And I think that having grown up as a Formula One fan, I always remember viewing Spa as being the ultimate test for a Formula One driver. And then over time, Spa has become effectively easy for a Formula One driver. I remember whenever Eau Rouge was the biggest challenge of the year. And now it's not. They've just got so much grip, so much power. And they're still able to go through that relatively easy. And then it became like, well, what about Puan? What about Blanchemont? And all these corners. And they've all steadily become easier for a Formula One car. Whereas for bikes, they'd just be awesome. So I'd say MotoGP Spa, World Superbike Suzuka. Not not bad. Not bad. (laughs) I'm quite curious, though, about what tracks you would put on. So, Matt, like, if you could put one track onto the GP calendar, I'm going to put you on the spot this time. We actually had this discussion last week. We, we, we just had the, this, this oh, discussion. So I've got, like... I've been for not listening to last week's pod, then. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've got three. One is one is a dream, one's a fever dream, and one's a realistic one. Uh, my dream would be Daytona. To see, as we, you know, the Rolex 24 was just yesterday. Well, the past, you know... Saturday and yep. Sunday. So to see, and they do the Daytona 200. So to see bikes take that circuit, and there's even even if you you make the argument, well, having them be on the speedway section is for too long is a little dangerous. There's a, another section they could take where they like cut through, and then they come out on the back straightaway. They go through the bus stop, and then they're only on the speedway section for like speedway three and four. Yeah, but in fairness. Would you want to see it where they're limited on the speedway? I, I want to see it where they're on the 
as much as they can be, you know, and uh, whether that that's like at the end of the day, it's a it's a dream scenario. So we'll mm. also dream that there's a tire that's fit to take that load yep. and all that kind of stuff. So I wouldn't want to see it where they're limited on it. Like I remember going to the 200 in 2012 and the, the sheer sense of scale at Daytona is unbelievable. Indy's the only place that came close to it for me. But I remember going to, I was at the Daytona 500 and then the mm-hmm. 200 a few weeks later. And I remember going to the 500 and seeing the, the stands absolutely packed out. Yep. And like, it, w- it was incredible. If you could get that at a MotoGP race, it would be unbelievable to experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, other two, the Fever Dream is Bathurst. And then okay. my, my realistic That's one. That's a proper I, fever dream. Yes. <laughs> my realistic one is uh, Road America. Okay. I could get behind all I could get behind all three of those. What about you, yeah. Lisa? I had the dream of spa as well, so that that's okay. something. Yes. And what what about you, Bono? It's quite good that you said Suzuka and Spa because last week I was literally praying that we could like somehow find a way to get GP to Suzuka. For me personally, I think Suzuka, like I could watch the short course of Suzuka and be more entertained than watching Mategi. Like I'm not, I'm, I, I don't mind Mategi. I think it's all right, but Suzuka and like the full Suzuka track is just like, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, Suzuka. M- Mategi's grand, and we're still going to Japan, so it's yeah. still quite cool. And, and I always enjoyed going to Mategi, but I remember the the first day I went to Suzuka. And uh, I just I, I thought this is what this is what a motorbike track should be. And you know, the yeah. opening sector of the lap is terrific. The snake as you come through up to Dunlop, and then you've got the Degners and and the figure of eight. It's so unique that that's what makes it special for me. Yeah. No. I, anyway, I, I just I've, think... I've I've co-opted enough of the hosting duties, <laughs> so I'll take a step back. Old habits die hard. Yeah. Yeah. But Suzuka for me, I'm just like um, I. I I just imagine Fabio through that first section, and I'm like, yeah, I, I would, I would like that, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So next we had, if there's a one rule or regulation that you could change, what would you change? In World Superbikes, I'd get rid of the one bike rule because it doesn't help anyone. There's already a bike sitting there in the pits, ready to be used, but teams are unwilling to use it. So fans miss out, riders miss out, whatever it could be. If there's someone has a crash we're missing out and everything's already there. The other thing is I just get rid of testing. You know, I'd have a rookie test and time for the rookies to get themselves up to speed. But we were down in Jerez for two days of running and there was almost every world superbike team and bike there. And you're just sitting there thinking, God, we've got a race track to ourselves. Can we not just have a race? You know, and uh, <laughs> that that for me is one of the things I change because there's no benefit to testing. You know, there's so much expenditure. It costs the same to go testing as it does to go racing and you don't get any return on it. So for me, I'd love to have it where we just got rid of the testing and maybe we had it where, you know, the factories are able to have an official factory test. Rookies are able to have a test and just leave it like that and have the Superbikes is a good example of it because we do two days of running at Phillip Island before the start of the season. So maybe you have, you know, a couple of days of official testing before round one and that's it. Uh, pick one rider, dead or alive, that you would like to go out on track with. Um, probably Wayne Rainey, because whenever I was a kid, like even though I, I was 
typically a big Formula One fan, Rainey was one of the, the few riders that captured my attention. And it was because of the the American riders always did that for me from their flat track background. It just flat tracks cool. And all those riders looked cool. And uh, Rainey was so successful and he, he was just a tremendous rider. So I'd probably go with Rainey. And uh, I remember when I interviewed him for the first time, I was properly starstruck because Wayne Rainey. And uh, it was, you know, if you've got that reaction to meeting him, then, yeah, that's who I'm going to go with. Because I never had that with any contemporary writer because you're there to do a job. And that job can be to interview them, to talk about them, whatever it is. But Rainey, for me, was that little step above. I mean, it's not a bad shout, is it? I mean, imagine doing Wayne Rainey, Wayne Rainey around Suzuka. That wouldn't be bad. Um, so the last one is if you weren't involved with motorcycle racing or say car racing, just to sort of like make it more interesting, what would you be doing or see yourself doing? Um, I'd still be a telecoms engineer. Uh, that's what I was doing for four years before I went full time into journalism. Like I'm a I'm a software engineer by by trade and then worked in telecoms for four years. So I'd still be doing that, I'm sure. Wow. Cool. And that that's something I like about that question, because you find out like what people what else they do. Because, you know, clearly we know you as a commentator and journalist and podcast host. But you know, to see like what other skills people have. That's just oh, my skill set is very limited in that. I want to make this perfectly clear. <laughs> Very limited. I was a very average engineer. So now that we're done with the quick fire questions, we want to ask you, you know, how did you get you like how did you get into motorcycle racing? Tell us the early days of Steve English as a motorsports fan. Um well my my first memory was as a three-year-old watching the Monaco Grand Prix. And I remember watching as Senna crashed out of that race. And that legitimately is the first memory I have. So May 88. And um, from that stage on, I just became a, a Formula One fan. And by the time I was seven or eight, I was absolutely mad about F1. And then as I got a little bit older, I started to realize there was more racing out there. And suddenly having more racing was the best thing that ever happened. And I started watching like Formula 3 and Formula 3000 and then there was there wasn't really too much availability to watch bikes on uh, Irish TV whenever I was a kid but you'd see some glimpses of it so the TT you'd always see or you know local road races as well we had a race like I'm from Dundalk and we had the Dundalk races so you go to that and like I remember my dad took me one year and Joey Dunlop was there and you know I was as a kid but you still knew that Joey was someone special. And um, so there was loads of things like that that kind of just gradually got me from being just a Formula One fan to then being a racing fan. And like I've gone to I've gone to events that have covered every side of racing. Really, I've done sports car racing, Formula One, bikes of like everything. I've done BSB, Moto America, World Superbikes, MotoGP. But it always comes back to the sense of excitement I had when I was a kid watching racing. And I've never lost that because it was just something that grabbed my attention in a way that like I played, I played every other sport. I watch every other sport, but no other sport 
grabbed me in the same way that racing did. And that was from whenever I was three all the way up. And I remember like whenever I was probably about 12 or 13, I was in school and I had a big fight with my teacher because my teacher was very uninformed about Formula One. And um, he had horrendous views and I had to make sure that he knew what was what. And uh, for the next five years, he never forgave me for that. So, uh, you know, sometimes having that passion comes at a cost, but you've got to you've got to be willing to pay that cost sometimes if you if you love it that much. Yeah, I mean, just just hearing that, then, did you ever go to like the Northwest as a kid growing up? Did you ever get the chance to go to any sort of like races that you could actually get to without it being a proper, a proper trek? Obviously, being in Ireland or whatnot, it's not like you're around the corner from Hareth and, you know, places like that that you, you sort of see on TV. Yeah, I never got to go to the Northwest until I was just finishing up college. So 2008 was the first time I went to the Northwest. And I'm 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 pretty sure I well I'd gone to quite a few of the the local road races and then I went to Mondello Park a couple of times. That was for the first time I went there was for well it was a Jordan Formula One event was on. So I went down to see that. There was the Phoenix Park races as well. So that was similar where you had local racing in Ireland and then a Formula One car would show up to do some demonstration laps. And then um, I remember going to Mondello for BSB as well. So the first year BSB went, which would have been 2006, probably sometime around that. And um, that was that was one of the real eye openers because that was the first time I actually went to see short circuit bike racing. And uh, it was it was great. And so what? trying to think how to ask this what do, like where did you get your start as a journalist because you said you were a telecoms engineer what what sparked your interest in journalism um well i was sick for a long time i was sick for about five years and i all I, I was sitting in a hospital bed and i was thinking what would you like to do what would make you happy to do something and i remember thinking at the time joe i'd love to be able to be I'd love to be able to inform people about racing. And I remember whenever I got out of hospital, I finished college and couldn't get a job. It was just after the crash in 08. So I had two years whenever I was just trying to see if there was any work out there at all. And I started writing on a forum for a preview for Formula One races. And this became a little bit popular. And then I remember thinking, oh, yeah, th this feels good. So... I'll keep doing that. And the, 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 the preview grew from being, you know, five or 600 words to being like a, like a David Emmett, Moto Matters, like 10,000 word preview for no reason at all. But people liked it. So I kept doing it. And then I remember we had the Circuit of Ireland is a big rally. And it used to be one of the biggest rallies in the world. And it would go all the way around the country Easter weekend. And it's gotten smaller and smaller. The way that rallying's gone, it's just become more and more condensed. But in 20, 2010, I want to say, or maybe 2009, it, had, it started in my hometown. So I went in, I took a few pictures, and I wrote a 200-word review of the rally. And one of the local newspapers took it up, and I remember going to them after that and saying, do you know what, I, I really want to be a journalist. I want to try and write a column on Formula One. So they said, I'll tell you what, are you going to write it every week? And I said, of course. 
And they said, are we going to need to do any work on this? And I said, no, I'll just give you the 300 words and you can have it. And the sports editor was Gavin McLaughlin at the time. And, and Gav said to me, sound, if it's 300 words that I don't have to worry about, I'm putting that in the paper every week because he's he's a one man band and he's having to cover Gaelic football, rugby, soccer, athletics, whatever's on in our area, he has to cover. So if he has 300 words that he doesn't have to worry about, he thought it was golden. And he took that and then it kind of became a, a racing column because if there was no Formula One race on, I'd write something about MotoGP. And it kind of just grew from that. And I got my first press pass on the ba- on the back of this 300 word column for a local newspaper that nobody outside of my hometown had ever heard of. And it got me started. And I've, I've always been grateful for the, the bit of luck that I got at the start of being a journalist because everyone needs that little push or that little step that gets them in the right in the right direction and I got that from a small local paper and do you remember That's what actually like caused that little step sorry Lisa just want to I'm just interested that that step between the paper and then like falling into like basically into the paddock what what was that little step like well I, I was probably writing for about two years with that paper and then I got got a job eventually and I was working for Ericsson as a, a telecoms trainer. So once I got that job, I just said, right, I'm going to a race. And I just booked my flights, flew to Silverstone for the British Grand Prix Formula One. And it was everything that you would expect it to be, everything you wanted it to be. You know, you're standing trackside, you've got a photographer's tabard, you're, you know, you're, you're in the middle of the action. It's the best thing in the world. And uh, then when you've experienced that once, you want to experience it again. And I think that the the British MotoGP might have been on pretty soon after that. So I went to that and the paper gave me two pages in the, in the sports section to write a report from MotoGP. You know, we had no Irish writers. We had no reason to have that level of interest. But again, the editor was kind of like, well, if there's 1,200 words I don't have to worry about, that's even better than 300 words. So he gave me that and I had pictures and words and it kind of just mushroomed from that because suddenly whenever I was working, it was a lot of travel involved. And I kind of, over the course of the next few years, make sure that wherever I was traveling to, I could go to a race. And that's why I went to like the 2012 the start of that year, I remember going to Daytona for the 500 and then I was at the 200 a couple of weeks later and I was at Sebring as well for the 12 hours, which was the same weekend as the 200. So I think I went from Daytona on the Saturday down to Sebring on the Sunday and I've covered two different events, two totally different paddocks, this, that and the other, but it never felt like work and it it still doesn't. And uh, I remember 12, 13, 14, I started going to more and more races and I kind of got a little bit, I kind of pushed a bit more into bikes than into cars because it was easier to, to get a foothold in bikes. Like you go to the Formula One paddock and there's 300 English speaking journalists that have been there for 20 years. You're not making too many inroads there. Whereas when you turn up at MotoGP race, you know, especially back then, 10 years ago, there was a handful of English speaking journalists. So you were already able to get yourself into to try and establish yourself a little bit easier in bikes than cars. 
Yeah, I was just saying it's interesting, you know, nowadays I think many people are looking forward to going to a school for journalism, but I think uh, the more we go back, many, many, many I've heard talk about it, just journalists of just talk about getting started on a newspaper, writing something, and even though, like, as you said, local newspaper, like, I had an opportunity, I, I wrote about horse racing on a local newspaper, because I, I was the only one who knew about it, and I was there then, so, yeah, seems like that. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that um, I remember when I was 15, I went to the Irish Times. I, I, I was published in like a transition year as a gap year that you have whenever you're about 15 at home. And uh, I was published in the paper for something or other for the transition year students. And um, your prize for that was to go and do a week's work experience. And I remember going down to it and it was it was it was great. I remember turning up and, and everyone teaching you about how to be a journalist and a lot of those lessons I, I still take on now and uh, try and go with them but the big takeaway from that was that a lot of them said if you go to journalism school you'll learn a lot of important things you'll learn about what you can write what you can't write you'll learn about you know libel and shorthand and all these kind of things but you need to just be passionate you need to have a subject matter that you know a lot about and that you're able to to get your thoughts across on and you know for for sports that's the most important thing for political writing for what you know anything else it might be different but for sports writing going to to college to be a journalist wouldn't have been the most useful thing for me it was it was for me it was the, the best thing was to go and be an engineer and get an opportunity but it's different for everyone as well and you know that's also 15 years ago so you know a lot's changed since then so when did you make the transition from journalism to commentary um well i'd say it's probably easier to look at it from when i went from being an engineer to being a full-time journalist and that was the sapang test sapang won at uh, 2015 and I got a call two days before the test. So I'd, I'd, I'd applied for a job with MCN as a, a web reporter for them. And then Matt Burt left. And he had obviously gone to Dorna to, to work as a commentator. And an opportunity came up to start with MCN. And I got a call saying, can you be at Sepang in 48 hours? And I'm working full time as an engineer. And, you know, I've got responsibilities. I've got, you know, a job. I was involved in projects, this, that and the other. So obviously my answer was fucking right, I can. And I booked my flights and uh, I, I had my flights, my hotel booked, everything was sorted. And then I went upstairs to hand in my notice. And uh, I was kind of thinking to myself, I wonder how I'm going to manage this. Like, am I going to have to call in sick to go to this pang test? Or, you know, what am I going to do? And uh, my manager at the time was, he was a great guy. And he said to me, you're not leaving to go to work for a rival competitor. You're going to do your dream job. So you're not doing anything that's going to impact us negatively. So go to Malaysia. And when you come back, we'll work out your notice period. And, you know, that was that. And I came back from Malaysia. I did an extra week. I, I handed over all my projects. And then I flew out a couple of days later to go to the second Sepang test. And from that moment on, I was a MotoGP journalist and it was it was it was magic. And then I did 2015 with MCN and then there was an opening in World Superbikes to be a commentator. And uh, Dorna, for some reason, whatever reason, 
uh, decided to give me a call. And I've been doing that then since 2016. So this is what my eighth season working in World Superbikes. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite nice, actually, to hear that your like old manager wasn't like quite not spiteful, but typically with something like that to just be like, yeah, by the way, I'm I'm just gonna like vanish. You would expect such a like severe response. So that's mm-hmm. that's I think the nicest part about that to hear was just the fact that you know the, the support there and the admiration for you actually going to do something that you want to do because that you know in, in a job like that, if you're always banging on about a certain you know different like career path and then that comes up, I mean, I can only admire the fact that you just went, yep. Yeah, booking my flights and just went so i mean fair play to the manager shout out to him i think i think that's quite a a, a very humane response from him to be fair yeah and i think it's one of those things that uh, for me it's a bit like with the editor of the local paper or the mm. dorna guys just from going for beers with them in 2015 that you know one thing leads to the other and as long as as long as you're always upfront and honest most people are pretty sound and uh, you know I've been lucky the whole way through my career whether it was as an engineer or as a journalist that uh, you surround yourself with good people and, and, and a lot of good things do happen and you know as long as you're not going out to 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 hurt anyone people want to help you people enjoy helping you and uh, that was definitely the case for me all the way through so in 2016, you start working with World Superbike. What was that like? What was it like to finally be in that paddock to basically be living out your dream? Well, I remember when I was probably a couple of years earlier than that, I was, I was supposed to go to Donington in 2012. And um, I had gotten my passes. I was all set for it. And this would have been my my first superbike race and i was really excited for it and i was probably too excited because i ended up in hospital and uh i uh i was i was too sick to to get up to to donnington first i was in in london at the time working and something had happened to me and that was that and i remember the the sheer sense of disappointment and it was almost like do you remember whenever you were a kid and you were seven or eight and you were invited to a birthday party your whole class is going to be there and then suddenly you get sick you've got a cold or whatever it is and you can't go and it just feels like the end of the world and sitting in that hospital room felt like that and i remember from from then on like i wanted to to get to as many events as i could and i went to Superbike races in 13, four, 13 and 14. And um, so I'd been in the paddock a few times. And then obviously working in MotoGP for a big publication, people know who you are as well. So by the time I started in Superbikes, it was it was relatively easy to transition into that paddock. And I went to the, the tests at Hareth, Aragon, and Hareth again in the off-season. So everyone knew who I was. I had introduced myself. I'd already made a lot of lot of contacts from from before I arrived in Australia, and uh, so I went to round one, and I felt like I'd been in World Superbikes for years because I'd already done my groundwork. And I think that's one thing that was really important for me because I've seen it with a lot of people in in lots of paddocks, where especially commentators, you arrive at your first event and maybe you haven't really 
submerge yourself into that paddock and and it's it's about trying to build that up on the fly during the season but I remember one of the best bits of advice that I got whenever I was with MCN was Michael Guy was my editor and Michael had been the world superbike reporter for MCN moved on to be the editor and he was a great journalist and he said going to the tests is the most important thing because that shows people in the paddock that you care that you're you're buying into being there and uh, I've always taken that with me. And that's why every year I go to the tests and there's very few occasions where there's a, a, a big group of world superbike riders on track and I'm not there because I feel that it's important to do that because you've got a, a commitment to, for me, it's, it's to Dorna because they're my, they're my main employer. And then you've got a, a commitment to whoever's reading any articles you have, whoever's watching anything on TV that, you're giving them the the best of, of of yourself. And the only way that I can do that is by going to the, those events and talking to as many people as possible and just working hard. And that was always one of the things that I, I kind of took with me. And then whenever I transitioned into working full-time in superbikes, it was relatively easy for me. And obviously in recent years being more, well, I'm just going with what we were on about earlier in terms of growing up with F1, and then it being, you know, more into your Joey Dunlops of the world and then having MotoGP links and now World Superbikes. Are you, I suppose one of the good quickfire questions could have been is prototype or production? Like, do you, do you now, do you favour a, a particular type or do you, do you have a preference? Or obviously you say you love racing overall, but obviously I think for me, I don't want to like speak on behalf of everyone here, but for me, World Superbikes sort of, I wouldn't say became stale, but it became like it needed. I think it needed a top rack in the in recent years. It needed the Baltistas of the world to come in and and shake things up a bit. I think it became too sort of like predictable. Whereas now you have like more riders that stand out. So do you favour World Superbikes now as opposed to like five or six years ago, or are you like? Yeah, I think, well, it's impossible not to not to look at right now and think that it's a lot better than it was whenever I first turned up. But there's a lot of factors that go into that as well. And the biggest mm. thing isn't riders, it's regulations. And Scott Weird. Smart did a great job of being able to come in as the technical director for superbike racing and make sure that the bikes were much more balanced and you could be competitive. Because whenever I turned up in 2016, like you knew Jonathan Ray was going to win the championship because you'd seen... Tom Sykes for three or four years on the Kawasaki could have won three championships. Johnny jumps onto the bike in 15, wins a championship. For 10 years, that was the bike that you had to be on. And Provec were Provec were a MotoGP team operating in the World Superbike paddock. And now eventually, over time, we've seen it where Ducati, Yamaha, Honda are getting there now as well. All of those manufacturers have made their teams perform to a MotoGP level. So Provec's big advantage was taken away. And then the bike advantage they had has also been eroded. So there's a lot of factors go into the fact that right now you've got a really healthy championship in World of Superbikes. And it's the same reason why MotoGP has gotten closer and closer and more successful. It's because regulations make that possible. And I think that's been probably the biggest shift that we've seen across whether it's prototypes or production bike racing. And that's where, for me, like at the end of the day, if you were putting all the riders on a truth test and you were asking like, which bike do you want to be on? Everyone wants to be on a MotoGP bike. Everyone wants to see a MotoGP bike. But 
when you're standing trackside, you don't really notice that big of a difference between a MotoGP bike and a World Superbike. And like we had it during the Hareth test again this year where Bradle's out there on his MotoGP bike against the, the World Superbike regulars. And, you know, you know that he's on a MotoGP bike. You can hear that, but you don't sense it if you were just looking at it trackside, not knowing the lap times, not knowing this, that and the other. You know, the, the margins between a MotoGP bike and a Superbike are so small over a single lap that there's not much to choose between them. Now, over a 23, 24 lap race, there's a big difference between them, but that's why you have to spend the money, you have to spend the MotoGP. But I think that as it stands right now, both championships are very successful, very healthy, and that's only a good thing for for race fans. Yeah, I I think just on top of regulation, which I completely agree with, I, I think regulation has diverted MotoGP in a more healthy direction and definitely World Superbike. But I sort of got this sense of World Superbike maybe 2017, 18, where it became like a like a, a fear of you know going against that team. And now I think on top of regulation, I think the characters like Top Rack don't it doesn't phase him. And I think that's the same with Bautista having raced so many years in in World Championship level in in MotoGP. I think these are the sorts of riders that are really beneficial for on top of regulation. I think World Superbike is in the healthiest position it's been in for like probably it's ever been i think i think it's really stepped up a notch and i just wondered if if that was something that on top of regulation that you that you favor having more i mean i I don't see how anyone i think there's a lot of british people that sort of was like oh no i'm not you know jonathan ray is always going to be the best rider on the grid he's always going to win every year and it sort of shook people up a bit when top rack turns up and then does what he does and now Ducati have obviously Ducati have gone up a whole notch I think World Superbikes like you said in terms of working at a MotoGP level I look at Ducati and World Superbikes and I'm like they you can tell you can tell they've really stepped it up a notch so I was just more intrigued to see your side on it as much as we're like MotoGP like sided I think the World Superbikes um, regulation talks and whatnot is a huge factor that is actually playing more into World Superbikes becoming bigger and bigger at the minute yeah, I think that's fair enough. And I think that uh, as it is right now, like I think especially with Ducati, they've it's pretty clear they've got a significant bike advantage, even with the rules the way that they are. But um, you know, now it's up to everyone to try and catch that. And now it's just wait and see what happens with it. I think that for my money, Top Rack and Ray are the, the two best riders in World Superbikes, and they are the big margin for error that um, other manufacturers don't have. Like um, Bautista, we saw what he was like when he was on the Honda and we've seen him two years on the Ducati as well. And on the Ducati, he's fantastic. And last year, he was inch perfect all the way through. But let's see what happens this season. You know, Top Rack learned a lot of lessons from the first three rounds last year. And now it's up to him to put them to, to the test now this season. And I'm excited to see how that goes and how he takes on that uh, next step because for my money top rack's the best rider in the world and that's you know i think he can do things that other riders can't do and that's what mark could do when mark first jumped onto a MotoGP bike and top rack can do things that other riders can't do and that's something special that's always worth paying attention to um a question i had for you and Whenever we found out that we were going to have you on the show, I immediately, this popped into my head. You're on the commentary for the 1992 Magella race on the video pass. 
How did that come up? Because, uh, and I, I was messaging Bono when I was watching the race. And at first I'm like, there's somebody on here. And I didn't, I skipped to <laughs> where the, to the race starts. So I didn't hear who it was. And I messaged him. And I think I, I'm like, I, there's someone on here that sounds like Sam, Simon Patterson or someone. And then the more I listened to it, as he was turning it on to hear it, I'm like, that's not Patterson. That's Steve English. Like, and it immediately, I started questioning everything. I'm like, this is 92. Maj- How old is Steve? Like, he's not that old. 60. Is- I'm 60, Mesh. I'm like, how did he do, did he, go- so, so he went back and recorded this? What, how did that come up? Um, well, I was seven when that race was on, so it definitely isn't a squeaky Steve English that's done the commentary on that. Um, what happened was, um, if you remember, probably about 15 years ago, Dorna started doing a lot of classic races and they had it where they had from, I think, 2002 on until it probably was, let's say, 2015 at that stage or something like that. And they had the MotoGP Golden Classics. Do you know what? It was probably 2012. It was 10 years of the MotoGP class or something like that. And they had, you know the most significant races from each season. And then this was really successful. So then they decided to, to, to keep adding to that collection. And, uh, you know, they, they went and they had from 92 onwards, they'd put in like some of their favorite 500 races. It could have been like Dune's first world championship or, you know, um, Bruno 96 and things like that, close finishes. And then they just kept adding to this catalog. And I got asked for a couple of a couple of winters, do you want some extra work? It's going to be to do some of these classic races and uh, fly over to Barcelona. I, did it, I think I did it twice and it was me and Nick Harris. And uh, you had two or three days hanging out with Nick and Nick's a great guy. And Nick loves his football, loves his motorbikes. And we've always hit, the, hit it off. And we had great fun for, for those trips. And we got called back to do it another once or twice. And, you know, we've, we've commentated on... 125s and 250 races. We've done a lot of classic races. Like we had uh, races that I'd never seen before, which was great fun to commentate on because you didn't know what was coming. Mm-hmm. And um, you'd, you'd look at the... Dorn actually has it on the on the website. They have like a, a, a 46 minute highlight show from each race back in the day. So I remember looking at it for... If we had the 96 uh, Czech Grand Prix, Rossi's first win, we had to do that. So we could go back and we could watch the highlights program for each of the races up to that point. So you'd look at it and you'd see the, the pre-race build-up had all the news in the paddock at the time, the five-minute news show. And then it went in to show you what happened in practice and qualifying in the races. So you could sit down, take loads of notes about like, on oh, in free practice at this race, Rossi had a big crash. Or, you know, in the build-up to this race, there's already talk about him being on a 250 next year. And you were really able to, to layer up a big narrative just from their news stories. And then you go and you do the, the, the classic race and then it's up to you to, to, you know, try and commentate on that. And, uh, you could do that by knowing what was going to happen or by being, Jesus, I can't believe that just happened. You know? And I remember there was one that we did at, at Aston. I think it was Lawson and Schwantz crashed. And I'd always read about that crash, but I didn't know when it happened. And then when it crashes or when they crash, you're just kind of taken away by, a big crash, a big moment. And, you know, you are swept back to commentating on it live and being at the event. So those, those highlight, those classic videos were so much fun to do. And like I said, working with Nick was tremendous because I learned more from Nick in those couple of days working with him than I had with 
working with some commentators for years. And uh, I, I thought that was really interesting to see the different things that he did. And uh, like, I think the last time we did them was just before the pandemic. So early 2020. And uh, Nick was still as clued in and pitch perfect as he always was. And to, to, to sit in a commentary box and then Nick becomes Nick Harris was uh, was always like a really special transition and we'd do those races and you wouldn't make you wouldn't you wouldn't try and correct your mistakes all that often because you also want things to be fairly natural but i remember there was times when like you could you could have fun with them and you could have it where like in 95 the first year that repsol were sponsoring HRC and then you could have it where you were commentating on, on a race and said oh I love the look of those bikes I hope they never change what they look like I hope it's always a Repsol Honda for the next 25 years or something and you could you could do things like that because we would find it funny and then you would you'd, you'd build up that camaraderie in that commentary as well so like I, I find those to be so much fun to do yeah I mean Matt asked me this at like in bearing in mind time difference, he's he's asking me this at like two a.m. and I, I was like, okay, I'll put it on, and I put Magello on, and I'm like, yeah, that's Nick Harris, and I'm like, okay, yeah, like with all due respect to Nick, I was like that. I could see Nick being there in '92, and then I'm like, is that Steve? That can't be Steve. Is that Steve English? Like, and I we sat there for a good twenty minutes, being like, no, it can't be. And then we did a little bit of research on it. We were like, it's Steve English, like. What I didn't know that Steve like, did commentary that far back, so it's good to hear that like we weren't actually losing our minds thinking that you were there in the '92 Italian Grand Prix <laughs> with all that you've been saying today. I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Bearing in mind you were like, you know, started in like 2013, 14, 15, and I'm like 1992. Like that's a big jump. So yeah, a considerable jump there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's, I wish I would get you and Nick back because um, we started this series on our uh, Instagram where I'm going back and watching all of the races from 2002 onward. And on the video past the 2002 Suzuka race, it was one of the like 40 minute um, ones you talked about. But then the next one was South Africa and there's nothing. And I even when I posted the video, I'm like, this was the most painful thing I have ever had to do. Because I, I'm sitting there watching, I'm like, I have no idea what's happening. I have no idea what else is going on in the race. I can only see what they're showing me. How, there's like, no they... commentary either, is there, I don't think. No, there's no commentary, nothing. And I even see, like... See, that was, why, that was why we actually did the classic races. Hmm. It was because they'd have footage, but nothing to go with it. And uh, then during the pandemic, obviously, every broadcaster was incredibly keen for content. So I remember BT did every week, you know, four races as as a as a as a show, and it would be let's look at these four races from, you know, classic jewels or whatever it would be, and they just use whatever they had that that was commentated on. And for Dorna, you know, their their full session commentary goes back to you know whatever year that would be, but they need to fill in the blanks, and the the best place to fill in the blanks was actually the 125 and 250 classes mm -hmm. because there was very little of them that Dorna had the commentary for because like if you look at it Dorna took over the the series promotion in 92 so that's why everything goes back to 1992 for them so they've got a lot of a back catalog to fill and that's where that's where we came in for for that job and you know I'm I'm sure that they'll try and fill out more of it over the the years as well and they've got a lot of 
great commentators on staff in Barcelona. So it'll be interesting to see how how they play out because it comes down to the narrative as well. You know, what's the big story right now? And, uh, you know, it's it's 20 years from Cato dying. Maybe you want to have, here's his, his wild card wins at Suzuka or whatever. So you try and you have to, to think in terms of what could be an interesting one to be able to push. And that's why we did a lot of, we did a lot of Rossi ones from his 125 and 250 days because they were important to have his first win, his first championship, his first 250 win, his, his Grand Prix debut. And and they were actually really interesting to sit back and watch because you could see things that he was doing as a 16 year old kid that other guys weren't doing at the time. And that's where a lot of those 40, 46 minute highlights videos were actually quite interesting because they went to some new tracks that year. And they went to Austria for the first time at the A1 ring, as it was then. And uh, you know, you could see in the free practice sessions he was taking different lines to, you know, Aspar or whoever was was there as the established stars. And you could see he was just moving things on a little bit, the same way that we've seen it over the last twenty years, where you know a young rookie comes into Moto Three and steps things up. And Rossi was doing that as well. I think it's easy to forget just how good he was as a 16 year old rookie, because he was always at the front and, you know, he was a future star right from the outset. Yeah. What I, you say highlights, sorry. Go on, go on. No, go on, go on. Yeah. I think what you say highlights really the importance of commentary, especially in sports, you know, because it's, it's not just saying what happens in the sports, but it's really explaining what, what's going on. And, you know, most people don't watch free practices, so they don't know, like, somebody has crashed and hurt his shoulder or something like that. And I sometimes hear people saying that, you know, commentary annoys them, so they turn it out. And I'm like, but how can you watch a motor race? Like, I understand if it's really annoying, but, uh, like, really understanding what's happening and considering you don't, you never see everything that's going on out, out there on the track. And you you can't see the timing or something like that. It's it's really hard to watch if you don't have any commentary on. So really valued good work you guys do. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that for me, especially like working with Alex Raby over the last like Alex came in in 2019, and uh, working with Al for the last four seasons. There's one thing that both of us really enjoy, and that's the grid. And you know how how anyone approaches things is always different. And I've worked with a lot of different commentators, but Alex is the one that we've had the longest relationship working together. So we, we know how each other flows. And the grid for us now is really interesting because we've got 20 seconds with each rider. And Alex will say something about, you know, the season as it's going, their stats for the year, how many, you know, top fives in a row, whatever it would be. And then I'll say how the weekend's gone for them. And if you only watch the build up to the race, you actually get a sense of what's happened between, you know, any of the riders, really, because when we even when we go to the the sixth row of the grid, we still take the same approach because that guy still has an interesting story. You know, there was times last year where, where Chris Ponson was actually quite an interesting story, even if it was only for those 10 seconds on the grid. But you've still got a duty to everyone on the grid to be able to tell their story and give some context to what you're seeing. Yeah, it was quite interesting as well when we listened to the 1992 Magello race that, and now you say that, yeah, it was quite funny to record. I think you said something um, quite early on in the recording, like you, I think you were going through the grid and you said something along the lines of like, oh, well, let's see if we can catch up with him later or like speak to him after the race. And I'm like, now I'm like, he was lying. He was lying the whole time. <laughs> 
Like, I feel like I've I've lived a lie. I'm now going to, every time I watch an old race now, I'm going to be like, nah, they weren't there. They, they weren't there. <laughs> well, that's where, like, uh, the, the loss and gamble in Hungary and ones like that that we did were always a lot of fun because we knew, obviously, that Lawson was going to come good. And uh, but he's he's a minute behind, but you're still having to keep track of him the same way that if you didn't know he was going to win, so you forget about him and you just discard him. He's parked unless he's shown on screen. He's parked because he's completely irrelevant. He's fifteenth right now, and you know he's not going to score any points. He's not going to do this. He's not going to do that. And then suddenly you start to see him rise up the list, and then you know we have to then say something like, oh, you know, we're just hearing from the pits that Lawson's out there on slicks, and uh, what a gamble, you know, and uh, you, you have to try and, like, having the context of why you're doing that race, trying to kind of, uh, it, it does bring you along a, a, a lot of the time for, for those kind of ones, but that's where they're different to doing a live race, because in a live race, if you're paying attention to Eddie Lawson in that race, you're probably not doing your job right, unless you unless you've gotten your tire sheet and it says he's out there on slicks. But uh, you know that's where there's always there's always a different challenge. Maybe we can poke Dorner and get them get you and Nick to do like some of the re- like the rest of the season, like for some of the older races, and then like when it when if they, if that ever comes about and they ever do it, and you're on it, if I hear you say something like, "Oh well, maybe after the race or something," I'm just going to be like. Fuck's sake! Like, I, I I don't know how I'm gonna have to like sit and listen to that and be like, yeah, he will talk to him after the race. Twenty five <laughs> years on, like... well, I mean, they can even just like you know get two teams, yeah, so that way they don't overwork you guys. You know, get no, 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 two... no, no. I'm 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 paid on a per race basis. They only need one team. They only need me in there. <laughs> yeah, let's let's bump the invoice. But uh, we want to ask you about your your Paddock Pass podcast. Paddock Pass podcast. I can't do it as fast as you. I don't have enough experience. But uh, how, you know, Neil kind of explained to that when we had him on last year. You know how that gets started. So on your end, how did you get started with the Paddock Pass podcast? Um. Well, basically, what happened was we were out for we were out for dinner in Coda in 2015. And we were just chatting about everything we'd heard. And one of the other guys, Jensen Beater from Asphalt and Rubber, was just entrenched, entrenched in it. And he was thinking, like, oh, my God, I never heard about this. I, I, I never I never understood that that's what was happening. And his girlfriend at the time also said, like, you guys need to you guys need to do a podcast because this stuff is this stuff is great. And it's stuff that fans just don't get and they don't know. So. You know, you can write it up, you can do this, that and the other. But a podcast is 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 a great medium for getting a lot of information across very quickly. And that's what you need to do with a, a sport like MotoGP. And so we kind of we started thinking about it at Coda in 15. And then we recorded our first one pretty soon after that. And at the time it was I think it was me, David. And I, I don't know who else. I mean, Scott Jones on a few episodes at the start. I'm not sure if Neil probably wasn't involved those early rounds. But uh, then as the season went on, he, he got involved because I remember after a few events, I was told by MCN, you can't be involved in something like this. You know, you're an MCN employee. If, if, if we have a podcast, you can be on that, but not on not on uh, an independent one. So I kind of took a step back. And when the boys were recording, I was effectively just sitting there as a producer and trying to 
moves the conversation to certain things, this, that, and the other. And like when we look at it from 2015, like it was, it was, it was terrible. You know, it was all over the place. We didn't know what we were doing. And then over time, we've kind of streamlined a lot, and and it's been great. Like because what what had happened was all of us sit together as a group. And my last year in GP was 15. That would have been Neil's first full season. So Neil came in and sat with us because I knew him from working from crash and we'd done a couple of world superbike races together and Neil's a sound guy. So you're always happy to help. So Neil sat with us and it was me, David, Pete McLaren, uh, Cormac, the, uh, Cormac Ryan, the photographer. We had Andrew, Andrew Wheeler. We had, you know, just a good group of guys just to hang around Tony Goldsmith as well. So we had a good mix of journalists, photographers, and, you know, we all just hit it off. So when we started doing the podcast, we just kind of brought what we would do at dinner tables to the podcast. And then it's kind of evolved since then. But that was the genesis of it. Yeah, it's... Oh, you see. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Lisa. You, you say it's terrible, but I went back and because I started watching just uh, late 21. So I went back to watch the older seasons and I actually listened to your podcast and I found it really helpful to listen to those alongside as I was, especially the season reviews, but also listen to some of the race ones. And it, it was actually helpful because, you know, in the races, you don't get everything. And I, I found it really helpful as I was going through. So. Well, that's always been the goal for us. And I think that's where the pandemic was actually really good for us because we had decided that 2020, we were going to make a big push and we were going to do a podcast every week. And we were going to be very concentrated on making sure we hit all of our targets. And we got to the the winter tests. We got to round one for World Superbikes. And then suddenly we had a four-month shutdown. And we were thinking, oh, my God, we've, we, well, we've said we're going to do it. So we've, we've got to stick to it. And we had to come up with a content plan for an indefinite amount of time. And that content became things like, you know, we did... Uh, a review of the the 2015 season. We did a two part review of that season during the during the lockdown. We did things about you know any random number of things within MotoGP, and we did a lot of focused shows just on a specific topic. And we had to try and really uh, uh, try and really develop that to make sure that we had a podcast every week. And it was that was that was probably the most fun that we had on the pod because you were trying to plan things out because a, a podcast like ours is very reactive. You're reacting to what happens over the course of a race weekend. For that season, we had to be very proactive and think, right, what's going to be an interesting thing for someone to sit down and listen to for an hour? And we just had to try and build that up. Did you ever find yourself scraping the barrel like during lockdown thinking like maybe top 10 like knee sliders of the grid. Like, were you really like <laughs> scraping the barrel at any point? Probably from like, let's say it was the first week of March was when the pandemic hit. So probably the fourth week of March, we were uh, scraping the barrel. So we managed to get two weeks where we were really solid. And then everything else was just like, shit, we're recording tomorrow. What are we going to do, lads? <laughs> But like us, we we've been doing this since uh, beginning of 2021, and uh, yeah, we like you. We've done the race reviews and stuff like that. But then when you have these off weeks, it's like, okay, we still want to put out content, but what are we going to do? And like we have we like we'll spitball ideas. Like I just put up one last night. Um, 
thought an idea I had, and you know, it's doing stuff like that. It's it really is a challenge to try to come up with different ideas that you think like, well, like you come up with an idea and it's like, okay, well, is this a full episode? Is this like part of an episode? Do we have to come up with other stuff around that? And like, what is you the paddock passes process and coming up with stuff? Is it just like? Like what what we do, where it's just like, well, oh, I had this idea, and then we spitball it from there, or is it just like throwing darts at a board and seeing what sticks? Steve's face when you said that almost looked like a. I've got to say a really professional answer here. Like we plan it all out. <laughs> no, we don't plan shit. Like we just kind of just go and and it's fine. Like what what like at the end of the day, when you've got twenty one races in MotoGP and twelve Superbike rounds there's 33 shows straight off the bat. You've got a season preview, season review shows. So you're probably up to another three shows for that. So you're up to 36 shows. Then you've got you know, your your top riders of the year. You've got an interview. You've got this, you've got that. Like you can fill 42, 44, 45 shows very easily. And then it's just fill in the blanks for anything else. And that's where like... Um, you know, we'll we'll record something about um, our favorite events to go to, and that'll be one that we're going to have probably published pretty soon. And it's going to be, you know, if you could only go to one GP, what GP are you going to? What makes Magello special? Which race wouldn't you go to? What's the, you know, what's the the easiest one for you to get to? This, that, and the other. So it, it it's things like that that are the ones that are are space fillers, but. You know, we don't really need to do that many of them because there's that much racing. And then even whenever you factor in, you know, if you've got an interview with Paco's the world champion, if you've got an interview with Paco, then that's a standalone show because he's the world champion. So it is pretty easy to fill the time without really having to to plan that much in advance. And is there anybody that you've, well, I mean, obviously there's there's a whole bunch of people that you've probably not had on that you want to have on, but like you've you've had a fair amount of good guests on the on the paddock pass. Is there anybody that you either have lined up or would love to have in in coming shows or um well everyone would love to have Rossi because it'd be ratings gold. But yeah. uh, good luck to you trying to get Valentino Rossi to come onto a podcast. Um so probably Rossi. You know, like we've had We've had Mark, we've had Fabio and Peco and everyone on World Superbikes. So probably probably that. Um, maybe if you yeah, I'd say I'd say probably you know, if if you could get Rossi it'd be great. If you could get, you know, Kenny Roberts, whoever you want. Like we Chad Reed on it a couple of weeks ago and it was terrific because Chad was there just as a MotoGP super fan. And the fact that he's a super successful Supercross rider was almost irrelevant to us because he was just looking to talk about MotoGP, and uh, I thought that was quite cool. Nice. So uh, we'll get this wrapped up because we want to, yeah, be respectful of your time. What is one piece of advice you would give to us from one podcast to another? Um, consistency and just getting the show out every week. That's that's the biggest thing for us, and then sticking to a format so our format is an hour-long podcast with a couple of ad breaks we know whenever we've got a race review that we're going to have winners and losers we know that we're going to have our moments of the weekend and you then build your show around the the known 
points that you're going to have. Like we're never going to really change from things like that because like I, I look at other podcasts and there's a big and it, it's 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 neither right nor wrong, but there's a big information dump. And it's because if you've got 22 riders in a grid, 23 riders in a grid, we've got to cover all these big stories. And even if, you know, Peko's won the race, is that the biggest story? Probably not, because guess what? A factory Ducati rider is expected to win the race. So even though you don't cover, you know, what some people would view as being the big thing from a, from a race weekend, um, sometimes it's more important to have a little bit more detail about some of the other things. And that's that's the kind of path that we've gone down. And like we're we're an informative podcast. We're not there to like we'll, we'll hopefully people laugh at different times during the show, and, and you know mm-hmm. they can see that there's a bit of banter between all of us. We're all friends. We get along great. And uh, the most important thing is though that they're able to learn about the sport because us as journalists, that's that's what our job is, you know. And and when you're when you're a a, a podcast like yourselves, that's a, a group of MotoGP super fans, you need to embrace that about your podcast. And I think it's just about knowing what you want your show to be and then sticking to that. And then obviously evolving over time and you know getting to races and getting yourself into the paddock more and more. And and then you never know what happens. Like I think for like I'm I'm a perfect case in point. You know, I turned up as an engineer and I started working for Crash.net at a few races a year and then few races became a lot of races and then eventually someone gave me a full-time job and then that led to commentary and that's where you know the the path that everyone takes is different but everyone's got the same goal and it's to try and make it where you know what their passion is is something that they can they can have a lot of fun with and like i've i've been very lucky to be able to do that that's uh we you know Love the advice. We always like to see you know, what other people can suggest and stuff like that. So we thank you for that. Um, so where can people follow you on social media? Um, well, on Twitter, I'm at Steve English GP. And then on Instagram, at Racing Lowdown. So uh, follow there. Or Paddock Pass Podcast is, is on Twitter as well. I think it's at Paddock Pass Pod. And uh, that's that's about it, really. I, I don't I, I don't tend to post as much as I used to post. I've, I've kind of gotten lazy on that regard so i need to probably get a little bit more active on it now that we're coming up towards the start of the season maybe you can post some like old photos from your old camera at the 1992 races that you went to maybe yeah i could do that i could do that i tell you what i i I found pictures from the british grand prix in 1997 when i turned up as a, a 12 year old formula one fan and i don't think any of them were either in focus or at the right exposure. They were horrendous. So I could post stuff from the 1992 Italian Grand Prix at Mugello, and it'll just be a white sheet, but it'll actually just be a shot that was ridiculously overexposed at the time, and I was definitely there. Yeah, so uh, Steve, we want to thank you so much for coming on here and being a great guest. Um, you You, we... I think everyone here listens to the Paddock Pass. You know, we love watching World Superbike and listen to your commentary. So uh, we just want to say thank you for being on and, you know, allowing us to just, you know, fanboy and girl over for an hour and a half. 
no, it's been it's been a lot of fun. At the end of the day, it's always fun to sit around and talk about motorbikes. So uh, mm-hmm. no, I've really enjoyed it. It's been it's been great to to finally get on as well. Yeah, so uh, we just want to say thank you very much. And uh, with that, keep the throttle pinned. Yeah.